Lord, be with us now as we hear from your word, as, as I teach and as we commune together. God, may you be glorified in all of this, we pray. Amen. Today's very long passage is printed on the back of your bulletin. Uh, we don't have any magnifying glasses, but hopefully you can read it. Uh, otherwise, feel free to just listen. This is Acts chapter 21, verses 15 through 40. After this, we started on our way up to Jerusalem. Some of the disciples from Caesarea accompanied us and brought us to the home of Nason, where we were to stay. He was a man from Cyprus and one of the early disciples. When we arrived at Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters received us warmly. The next day, Paul and the rest of us went to see James, and all the elders were present. Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. When they heard this, they praised God. Then they said to Paul, You see, brother, how many thousands of Jews have believed, and all of them are zealous for the law. They have been informed that you teach all the Jews who live among the Gentiles to turn away from Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or live according to our customs. What shall we do? They will certainly hear that you have come. So do what we tell you. There are four men with us who have made a vow. Take these men, join in their purification rites, and pay their expenses so that they can have their heads shaved. Then everyone will know there is no truth in these reports about you, that you yourself are living in obedience to the law. As for the Gentile believers, we have written to them our decision that they should abstain from food, sacrifice to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. The next day, Paul took the men and purified himself along with them. Then he went to the temple to give notice of the date when the days of purification would end and the offering would be made for each of them. When the seven days were nearly over, some Jews from the province of Asia saw Paul at the temple. They stirred up the whole crowd and seized him, shouting, Fellow Israelites, help us. This is the man who teaches everyone everywhere against our people and our law in this place. And besides, he has brought Greeks into the temple and defiled this holy place. They had previously seen Trophimus the Ephesian in the city with Paul and assumed that Paul had brought him into the temple. The whole city was aroused and the people came running from all directions. Seizing Paul, they dragged him from the temple and immediately the gates were shut. While they were trying to kill him, news reached the commander of the Roman troops that the whole city of Jerusalem was in an uproar. He at once took some officers and soldiers and ran down to the crowd. When the rioters saw the commander and his soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. The commander came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. Then he asked who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd shouted one thing and some another. And since the commander could not get at the truth because of the uproar, he ordered that Paul be taken into the barracks. When Paul reached the steps, the violence of the mob was so great he had to be carried by the soldiers. The crowd that followed kept shouting, get rid of him. As the soldiers were about to take Paul into the barracks, he asked the commander, may I say something to you? Do you speak Greek? He replied. Aren't you the Egyptian who started a revolt and led 4,000 terrorists out into the wilderness some time ago? Paul answered, I am a Jew from Tarsus and Cilicia, a citizen of no ordinary city. Please let me speak to the people. 
After receiving the commander's permission, Paul stood on the steps and motioned to the crowd. When they were all silent, he said to them in Aramaic, dot, dot, dot. (laughs) This is the word of God. And we will hear from Mark Atkinson next week what Paul says about the speech that Paul gave. But today we follow this journey to that speech, toward that speech, this journey toward Jerusalem. And as we dive into this hefty passage that closes out Acts chapter 21, I want us to focus on one word. It's not found in the passage, but I think it really captures what is happening here. And that word is unthinkable. Unthinkable. What we are witness to here in these verses truly is Paul and his companions and the Holy Spirit pursuing, believing in, and wanting to see manifest the unthinkable. The unthinkable reality that Jew and Gentile can live together, not merely have their lives coexist side by side, but truly that they could live together. The unthinkable reality that the fear of so many wouldn't overpower the witness of Paul and his companions. The unthinkable reality of what Peter told the council of elders back in Acts chapter 15. We believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we, the Jewish people, are saved just as they, the Gentiles, are. The unthinkable reality that the Apostle Paul, who once advocated for the imprisonment and murder of Christ followers, would now himself be following in the bloody footsteps of that very Christ who he follows. The unthinkable reality that the Holy Spirit could join people, groups, and communities together without destroying people, groups, and communities. The list can go on and on. And we can see these unthinkable realities throughout the book of Acts, even in this long passage. Unthinkable. Even though by now, as we've been settling into this book for the last 43 weeks, uh, by now it seems like this reality of Jews and Gentiles living as one, to you and me at least, Uh, it might be easy to comprehend. We find that it's not so easy to grasp for this first century community. In this passage, we get a glimpse of this beautiful reality, though. Paul tells his fellow disciples, his brothers and sisters, in detail what God has been doing among the Gentiles. Verse 19, and then in verse 20, we're told, those who heard this praised God. If the passage ended there, this would be a really beautiful picture of this unthinkable reality becoming truth and becoming normal. But of course, it doesn't end there. Even as they praised God, their uncertainty starts to creep in. In verse 21, they tell Paul that there are thousands of Jews who have been told that Paul told these other Jews to turn away from Moses, which simply wasn't true. That was a lie. In the midst of their praise of what Paul said God was doing through the Gentile community, a lie arises. Even as this unthinkable reality came closer and closer to being accepted, a lie emerged. A lie that Paul told anyone to turn away from Moses or to abandon their customs. We've actually seen Paul do the opposite. We've seen Paul engage in customs out of respect for those whom he had been ministering to. And we actually see that again here in this passage. In verse 22, we get a question that we first encountered all the way back in Acts 2. What shall we do? What shall we do with this lie that you've told people to turn away from Moses? Now in Acts 2, the question, what shall we do, comes up in response to what Peter preached about the power of the Holy Spirit and about the lordship of Jesus Christ. In Acts 21, sorry, my iPad just did something. Uh, In Acts 
21, the question actually arises out of what seems to be fear. It arises out of this lie, out of this uncertainty. If what Paul is saying is true, that God has been working miraculously through the Gentile people, what does this mean for us, the Jewish people? I think it highlights our human nature, that it doesn't take long for us to revert to what does this mean? What does X, Y, Z mean for me? Not what does this mean for the world around me? When that question was asked in Acts 2, it was a question directed toward the community. It wasn't an individual response, what shall I do? It was a concern for the community of believers who were gathering together and whose hearts had just been pierced. Now the question is, what does this mean for me? What does this mean for my group? It's a question that comes out of fear, and it's a question that can't wrap its head around the unthinkable reality that this witness of Paul might actually be able to overpower this fear. I don't think we've heard this word at our church for a few months, but this fear stems from diaspora. Diaspora is quite literally the dispersion of a people group. And historically, where we're at here in the first century, we're in the context of the Jewish people living in that dispersion, living in diaspora, having been dispersed centuries and centuries earlier, the exile of God's people, the exile of the Israelites. And here in the first century, here in the book of Acts, the Jewish people continue to experience the effects of diaspora. We've seen this all over Acts as we've studied it. One of the most explicit experiences, I think, that we rested on uh, came in Acts chapter 6 as we encountered the Hellenistic Jews and their widows being overlooked and oppressed by the Hebraic Jews. Throughout Acts, the pain and the fear of dispersion plagues the Jewish people. In a lot of ways, it's why there's fear and misunderstanding of why the Gentiles are now included in God's community. If the Jewish people, who have historically been considered God's people, are dispersed and divided, how then or why then could God's people expand even further? This is diasporic fear. It's anxiety. And this is where that question, what shall we do, in verse 22, comes from. And so those experiencing this fear believe they can overcome it if Paul just shows a little bit of authenticity. If Paul can just give the traditional way of the Jewish people one more chance. And we see this play out in verses 24 through 26. Paul hears the concerns. He no doubt sees the fear and the anxiety. And he knows it's going to serve the community best for him to hear them out and to actually participate in these traditions. And unfortunately, we find out very quickly in verse 27 that this kind of fear, this kind of anxiety cannot be overcome Uh, simply by what Willie James Jennings refers to as a performance of authenticity. What happens here is that we see the elders in this passage simply rehearsing what they've heard about the Gentiles, that the Gentiles are part of this community of God. Jennings says they have not followed the Holy Spirit all the way into the Gentile space. They're simply repeating back what they have heard. The Jerusalem leaders see parallel worlds, Jew and Gentile, but that is not the world created and now being recreated by the Holy Spirit. You see, these leaders, they, they recall what Peter had said in Acts 15, that we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we, the Jewish people, are saved, just as they, the Gentiles, are. They're recalling that, but they haven't followed the Holy Spirit all the way into the reality of what that means. So hear that, the fear The anxiety of this dispersion, of this diaspora, manifests itself here as acknowledging the worth of the Gentiles, 
but refusing to acknowledge that their world and their lives are one with the world and the lives of the Jewish people. Parallel worlds, but not joined worlds. Fear has produced this kind of thinking. And now fear, when confronted with Paul's authenticity and willingness to live in the Gentile world and the Jewish world, seeing them as one, because he knows they are one, when confronted with that truth, fear turns violent. Violent, beginning in verse 27, lasting much longer. This fear turns violent, and this fear calls out to the crowd for support, just as we have been seeing over the last several weeks. The crowd is stirred up, lies are thrown around once again. In verse 28, Paul is seized. He's dragged somewhere. He's beaten so badly that Luke describes it as if they were trying to kill him. In verse 31, we've seen this crowd before, not just in Acts. We've seen a crowd get stirred up. We've seen a crowd hurl out lies. We've seen a crowd demand the life of an innocent person. And in fact, we've seen this crowd uh, described to us by the author of Acts, Luke, in his gospel. In Luke chapter 23, a crowd that demanded the arrest and the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. And just as that crowd no doubt was experiencing its own anxiety and pain and fear, this crowd here in this morning's passage, consumed by their own fear and anxiety, they turn on Paul just as they turned on Jesus. The gift of what Paul is bringing to Jerusalem after all of his journeying, after all of his teaching, after all of his experiences, this gift of the power of the Holy Spirit, this gift of firsthand knowledge of the beauty of Gentiles and Jews living together, firsthand experience of the Holy Spirit changing people's lives. This gift is not seen by the crowd. Paul is only seen as a threat. It's unthinkable that Paul could bring this gift with him. Unthinkable to these elders who know it's possible. Unthinkable to this community. It's unthinkable that the same Paul who roamed Jerusalem and approved of the killing of Stephen in Acts 7 and 8 would now come to Jerusalem and not only advocate for these Christ followers, but advocate for a world in which all of God's people, Jew and Gentile alike, would live together in union with one another and in union with Christ. And so this gift is viewed as a threat, and it's met with violence. And as we see, that violence grows into military force. The scene turns chaotic. Paul is arrested. He's bound, verse 33, just like the prophet Agabus told him he would be in last week's passage. Verse 34, we're told lies and half-truths are shouted. Some shouted one thing, some another. We don't know what specifically, but we know that they are not in line with each other. And so the military commander couldn't get at the truth. And because of that, he ordered that Paul would be taken away. Luke gives us such a vivid picture in verse 35 that the violence and uproar of the mob was so out of control that he had that Paul had to be carried by the soldiers. There is so much violence in this scene. Violence caused by fear, by anxiety, violence stemming from diaspora, violence exploited by the state and the military. And in the midst of all of this violence, somehow, Paul gets the attention of the soldiers and of the commander, and he requests a chance to speak to the crowd. Now, you talk about something that's unthinkable. Paul, who's no doubt bloodied from this crowd, probably incredibly weak, scared to death, confused, wondering if this is his time that he's going to die for Jesus Christ, what he said last week in last week's passage. 
unthinkable that Paul could get a chance to speak to those who would want him dead. And here, as this plays out near the end of the passage, we get a sense, too, of the confusion that is happening. Verse 38, the commander thinks Paul is an Egyptian terrorist who led 4,000 other terrorists into the wilderness some time ago. And history can tell us that there was a man who came to Palestine about three years earlier from uh, when Paul came to Jerusalem, who claimed to be a prophet and then attempted to lead an insurrection of Jewish people. Now, this wasn't Paul. And so Paul knows that. He gathers himself. He addresses the commander with the truth. I am a Jew. I am from Tarsus. But I am a citizen of no ordinary city. And then Paul stands and speaks to the crowd and speaks to the crowd in their own tongue, in Aramaic. And Paul finds himself in such a unique, profound position. He has joined Jesus in suffering. He has joined Jesus in wrongful arrest. He joins his people in continued oppression and violence by the Roman Empire. He joins Jesus in pleading to the people. And he, as one of Christ's followers, joins those people in hearing from and responding to the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul is truly in in such a unique, profound place right now. There's a sense of anger and yet a sense of hope. There's a sense of pain and yet a sense of relief a sense of clarity and yet a sense of confusion, all coming together all at once, all here as Paul speaks to his people, his dispersed, anxiety-ridden, fear-filled people. And next week we hear this speech. But this morning we sit with all of this. We sit with the unthinkable realities of what we've come across in these verses, culminating with the most unthinkable reality that the Holy Spirit could join people together without destroying people. That in some supernatural, mysterious way, people and communities could be joined together without losing their identities or their traditions, without being destroyed themselves, coming together in a beautiful, indescribable diversity that only the creator of the earth could conceive of. Truly unthinkable. In our lives today, This means there's no separation between people groups, between neighborhoods, between communities. It means there are no parallel lives or parallel worlds, but there is one life and one world in which we are all a part of. There is no separate but equal. There is no hierarchy. There is no supremacy. There is God's people, God's creation. This, of course, is hard to embrace. (laughs) It's nice to say. It's hard to grasp, and it's hard to see manifest in our lives and in our world today. But we must ask ourselves, who are we making space for in our lives and in our world? Who do we make space for right here at Hope Health Kitchen? Who don't we make space for? Who don't we make space for at our dinner tables or at the bar counter or at the break room? Who do we look at as part of God's creation, but who we could never imagine embracing as a friend? or as a brother or sister? These are the unthinkable questions that we have to ask ourselves every single day, not just as individuals, though certainly as individuals, but also as a community and as a church, as a group of people who claim to know and love this Jesus Christ, who claim to know and follow this powerful Holy Spirit. And it's a question I believe that we have to ask each and every week that we come together to commune at the Lord's table. Is our own fear or our own anxiety of the other keeping us from truly joining together in communion with one another? 
I think our community is small enough right now that when we look at one another as we take the cracker and the cup, that I don't think there's fear here, and I'm grateful for that. But if God deems it worth uh, worthy to, to grow this community and we begin to commune with strangers, people we don't know, what will our posture be? Will we question who they are? Will we question their worthiness of coming to the table? Will we question these, these types of things? Or will we see our lives and our world joining with theirs in union? Will we see our lives and our world joining together for the sake of the oppressed, for the sake of the downtrodden, for the sake of the forgotten, for the overlooked? Paul's mission and journeys were never about building up his own brand or his own fame. They were never about raising a ton of money for his churches or even about growing the churches. Paul was never concerned with that. The Holy Spirit was concerned with that, as we see. But that was never Paul's mission. His mission and his journeys were always about following the guidance of the Holy Spirit, helping those in need and putting others' well-being, others' livelihoods ahead of his own. I just saw right before church, a friend of mine is preaching, um, Robert Guerrero, and uh, I don't even know where he's preaching, but someone posted a quote on Facebook. And he said, uh, in, in, in Robert's sermon, he said, churches that exist for meeting fail. Churches that exist for mission thrive. And you see how Paul acts throughout Acts, how he journeys throughout the book, that he's never concerned about the number of people, who's coming, where they're meeting. He's always concerned about the mission of following the Holy Spirit. We have our own mission, of course, loving this neighborhood, serving this neighborhood that we're still figuring out. I'm still figuring out. We're still talking about and praying about. Um... But I know that our mission boils down to following the Holy Spirit. And that if our church remains this size for the next 100 years, praise God. Praise God, because we exist to serve him, to serve this neighborhood, and to love this neighborhood. And let me be clear too, and I really, really appreciated Justine's prayer, that this is not some lukewarm joining together of people where racists and anti-racists sit next to each other or where abusers and their victims break bread together or where slave owners and slaves sing together. There's a shallow beauty in those scenarios. And too often we lift those kinds of things up as the goal of our work. But that overlooks the power of who our God is. The power of God that will break the chains of the oppressed and that will also break the grip on those who put people in chains. Power that will heal and strengthen the victim and power that will crush and hold accountable sinful abuse. That is the power of the God that we experience. This joining together prefers the oppressed and will save the oppressor. This joining together lifts up the overlooked. This joining together pushes us further away from power. This joining together brings each of us as one into a world, into a life where we hold one another accountable, where we repent of our own sins and failures. This joining together takes us away from violence takes us away from military seizures, takes us away from a crowd that is ready to kill. This joining together is truly reconciliation at its most powerful and its most profound. Uh, John Perkins, a great theologian, teacher, pastor, author, professor, uh, in his book, One Blood, he describes reconciliation as the removal of tension between parties and the restoration of loving relationships. 
The removal of tension is not a forgive and forget removal, but a difficult reality in which our lives become one with the oppressor or with those whom we oppress. When our lives become one with those who overlook us or with those whom we overlook. And it's not an automatic, beautiful, peaceful world. We have to work toward removing this tension. We must actively work toward restoring love in our relationships. And when we do this, we're pursuing reconciliation of the utmost importance, I would say. And as Perkins then says, we get glimpses of heaven in our midst. You think about Stephen in Acts 7, when he's killed, when he's stoned to death, we're told his face shone like that of an angel. And I can imagine Paul, no matter how bloodied and beaten he is right now, how sad and how scared he is, that just last week we heard in the passage that he's ready to die for Jesus Christ. And so this work of reconciliation is not easy, and yet we know that it is deeply, deeply important to our God. Gentile and Jew not simply living next to one another, but living with and for one another. You and me, this church, this church in Hell's Kitchen, each of us and the world around us, not simply living next to one another, but living with and for one another. And so we think of all of that as we come to the table today. We think of our own repentance individually. We lift up our repentance as a community. We long for restoration in relationships. We long for justice and peace to be achieved. We long for oppression to be ended. We long for violence to be no more. And until then, we continue to pray and we continue to work and we continue to act in accord with this Holy Spirit who has been guiding God's holy church, God's community since the book of Acts. The historic, never-ending love of God the Father makes this possible. The life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ makes this possible. And the gift of the Holy Spirit makes this possible. It is truly unthinkable that we are, at this moment, that we are invited to experience the presence of this triune God through communion with one another. And so when we commune, we remember all of these things and we pursue them, no matter how unthinkable they are, We do that together. And so in a moment of silence, before we commune together, lift up whatever God has placed on your heart at this very moment. Spend time with God. Share whatever repentance is rested on your heart. Share whatever broken prayers might be in your head right now. And give that to God. And we'll come back for communion.